Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. I'm Francisco, your host, and we're right in the middle of the Sister Cities series, which means Hello, Sonoma has gone global. In this episode, I am broadcasting to you from the Pyrenees Mountains in France, and I can't wait to get started. Hello, Sonoma. Welcome to another Dispatch from the Hello, Sonoma Sister Cities series. There are still a few weeks before I arrive at the first sister city, Chambord-Mousigny, just south of Dijon in France, and there are still a few surprises along the way. This episode takes us to the south of France. No, not to the holiday beaches, but to a mountain range called the Pyrenees, which marks the border with Spain. Throughout the range are a series of valleys dotted with tiny villages that in the summer often get thousands of visitors a day. Sound familiar? As you may know, I believe here at Hello Sonoma that everyone has a story, and that every story is interesting if you ask the right questions. Usually when I'm in Sonoma, that means I find someone from our community and spend a good amount of time trying to learn more about them before hosting them for an hour-long interview on the program. On this Sister City journey, I'm also trying something new, finding stories by meandering. What does that mean? It means stories that pop up by chance, digging into someone's history and what they do, based on walks around town or interactions that I have with people as I've already had on an airplane or in an apartment. While on a walk around a tiny village of Arrault, I stumbled upon two women with fishing poles getting their lures ready by the river. At first I walked past them, wondering what they were up to. Then I turned back thinking, this is the perfect opportunity, and I decided to talk to them. Bonjour, je suis là avec comment est-ce que vous appelez-vous Laure. Laure. Et moi je suis Francisco et vous Manon. Manon. J'ai une amie et ça s'appelle Manon. These two ladies, Laure and Manon, are organizers for La Fédération Française de Pêche Sportive. The French Federation of Sports Fishing. And today in the mountains around this tiny village, they're having a fishing competition. For three days, says Laure, 64 teams of two are up in the Pyrenees, with tents, backpacks, and, of course, fishing equipment. The goal, she says, is to catch as many fish as possible. The winners will not only win nationwide glory, but 4,000 euros as well. What do you need to win? De l'endurance. <laughs> Endurance. Et être bon à la pêche, <laughs> surtout. <laughs> and you must be good at fishing, above all, says Manon. This is by far the shortest of my interviews, but I think it highlights the pure surprise and joy I had from a simple attempt to talk to someone I didn't know about what they might be doing. Who could have possibly guessed that there was a three-day endurance fishing competition going on outside this tiny village, that that kind of competition even existed? I had no idea that this was the answer they would give me when I stopped to ask them if they were fishers. I guess this time at least, I asked the right question. Energized and motivated by the last conversation, I wandered down the only main street of Ajo, peeking into the pharmacy and the convenience store, wondering what was on the shelves there. I stopped in front of a bakery with a huge poster of a pastry I'd never seen before, and wondered what it was. Then I went inside and got my answer. That's Rama, one of the bakers, and she said that the poster was of a gâteau à la broche, and it's a specialty here. It means cake on the coals. Picture a hollowed-out pancake Christmas tree, with drip-like icicle branches pointing out in every direction. It's made by ladling a mixture of egg, water, flour, vanilla, sugar, rum, and almond paste, 
onto wooden cones as they spin on a spit over hot coals. The result is somewhat like a cross between an almond-flavored pancake and a waffle, but the Christmas tree shape is what makes it particularly distinctive. Rama went on to describe the other products that they sell. Local honey, organic beer, wine, sausages, pastries. She was accompanied by her store partner. Moi, je Benjamin. Benjamin grew up in Arrault. He only recently began making gâteaux à la broche under Rama's tutelage two years ago. But before that, he had wandered out of the village to be the manager at a discotheque in a town not too far away. He spent some time showing me what was on the shelves, including a picture of a gigantic gâteau à la broche, over six feet tall, made for a local competition. He told me about the importance of having local producers, of building relationships with them, and being able to call on them when certain products were running low. I asked if he had any last words he wanted to say about the gâteau à la broche and his gourmandise montagnard, the name of the patisserie in which they both worked. Come stop by, he said. We are very nice, and it's a lovely ambiance. These were two meandering stories, experiments on the Hello Sonoma platform. I hope you enjoyed them. In just a little bit, we're going to talk with someone else from a different village, the small village of Gavarni. Gavarni is a town just a mile or two from Spain, across the mountains. With a year-round population of just 80 people, only three families really call this place home. Despite that, almost 10,000 visitors come every day in the summer to see a special geological feature that sits just at the end of town. The feature is called the Cirque de Gavarni. To call it a cliff does not quite do it justice. It's a 5,000-foot-tall limestone mountain carved by millennia of glacial erosion into the shape of a vertical bowl. Four or five waterfalls tumble off its cliffs, one of which is the tallest in continental Europe. Down below, the Hotel Vignemal sits facing this magnificent cirque and has been there for at least a hundred years. I sat down with Lydia, its owner, to talk about what it's like to live here and what it's like to leave. Here's that conversation. Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. I'm here with Lydia. Lydia, how are you today? I'm doing fine, thank you. Can you tell us about where we are right now? We are in uh, southwest of France. The village name is Gavarni. It's a World uh, Heritage UNESCO site, one of the few in the Pyrenees. And what about the building we're in? We are in the building built in the late 1900 and uh, inaugurated in 1903 by the Count of Russell. Uh, we will call him Irish now, but we will call him British at the time. Mm. And so this place has a lot of a pretty long history uh, in, in recent modern memory. It was a place where many people came to see this incredible uh, mountain, right? Well, it's not quite a mountain. What is it? It's an amphi amphitheater because it was uh, during the glacial year. Um, three, three stages were um, made by glacier. So we have a different elevation that you can definitely see in the amphitheater. That's 250 meter high, which is pretty much 750 feet high. Then you have um, double that, and then you finish by 9,000 feet high summits. 
So we're, it's like you're in this valley, you go to the end, and then suddenly there's 9,000-foot cliffs that form the shape of an amphitheater, all carved out by glaciers in three separate stages, right? That's correct. And behind, what do we have? Spain. So we're in a pretty special place. <laughs> the end of the world. Oh, no, the southernmost part of France. There you go. And so you're from, you're from this area, aren't you? Yes, I am. But I was born in Lourdes, where it's, I guess I was the closest clinic. <laughs> <laughs> so either you were on the way or you were there. <laughs> so, so you're born in Lourdes, which is not too far away. This town, what's the population of this town? Um, right now, I would say that 80s. It's not really what they say, but in living people, it's 80 people all year round. So we have 10,000 people visiting per day and almost a million per year. So it's kind of, I mean, it's comparable to Sonoma in that I've always thought that Sonoma was a small town. You know, there's like 12,000, 5,000, 15,000 inhabitants, I think, if you could, if you, the whole area. But there's so many more people visiting. So we're used to getting lots of visitors, but the scale is very different. 80, 80 residents. So you must know everybody here. And everybody knows me. That's the thing. <laughs> and what do you think about that? That's interesting, um, considering the fact that we have like three families, really, that makes the whole thing. So it's just different. For anybody that comes here to live, is very difficult. But for us, we've been living here. I haven't lived here all my life, but I'm from this valley. So I guess that's acceptable. But you really have to be very happy with your own self because Wi-Fi system or internet system is depends on the weather and depends on the infrastructure that is not really good. So you have to be able to read books, like to read books, <laughs> hike, and um, pretty much enjoy the site. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, today we were at a store trying to get something and the internet cut out. And then when I went to the radio station later, they said, yeah, the internet cut out for us too. It was the whole valley. <laughs> so sometimes these things can happen, right? It does happen very often. And not necessarily people understand that we do not have the facility they expect, which I do understand. They get something mad, but this is living like the old days, which is fine for us. That's fine. Yeah, 10,000 visitors a day who need to kind of get used to it. This is not like <laughs> Paris or Amsterdam or wherever they're coming from. Yes, and, and that could be unfortunate just because for us it could be complicated to uh, just to have someone to pay with a credit card. If it's a GPS system, it could be very complicated. But we live with it and we just, we're fine with it. So my listeners are probably wondering, okay, how does this woman, Lydia, speak such incredible English if she lives in a tiny town of 80 people in the south of France on the border of Spain? So uh, tell us a little bit about that story. In one point of my life, I went to the United States. I was in my 20s, and I went to meet my sister, who was already there for the past, I think, seven years. I think something like this. I'm not exactly sure. But she was there, and I met her there. I learned English because I was not speaking a word of English. And um, I studied English, took my high school diploma, went through the university, and at one point in time, I came back. So... I know that you're, I'm not interviewing your sister, but you might have some insight there. How did she decide to go to the United States? I mean, how did that even come about as an option? 
Um, because in high school, last year of high school, fourth grade, um, you have these orientation uh, professors that will tell you, what do you want to do? And so you have all those options. And one of the options was, before you are 18, you can go to the United States, stay with a American family, and be in the last year of high school in the United States. So here's my sister seeing that uh, little brochure and comes home and say, I want to do this. So she went to Indiana, in Kokomo, Indiana, and she ended up with a family, a couple that was pretty young. There was, I think, 23 or 25 years old. And she stayed there for a year, and she liked it so much, she decided to get into the university. That's so incredible. So, But I think that shows a certain kind of bravery to really go outside of your comfort zone on purpose, to go across the Atlantic in a place whose language you might not speak that well. And you showed that same bravery, I think, by following her. What was your decision-making process like? My decision was a little bit different so because I was very much into sports and I was not really doing so great because sports is really like tech school, it's not really a primary job or it's not like a major that you you are majoring on. So I was not doing very good and work was difficult. So at one point in time, and I said, and I was a, um, a private instructor and I was a, a personal instructor as well and cross-country skier. And I decided to try in the United States because it was so much like aerobics and all the personal trainer and all that. So I went there. And after a month stay with my sister, I decided to go back to the university. That's why I decided to learn English, take my high school diploma. Well, at the time it was GED, general education diploma. And then I went through the university. And you went to Florida International University. I started with Miami-Dade Community College, and then I went to FIU, Florida International University. And you went from learning about sports or being interested in sports to studying architecture. Yeah. In France, I was into sports in Miami. I was into architecture. Our deco district in Miami in South Beach was so interesting. And I was all very keen on architecture since my young age. So I guess it was just reveals at the time that this is something I wanted to pursue I love that because it's such like a, it doesn't make sense on the surface. Why would you do, why would you change something like that? But underneath you had always had this architectural yeah. interest, right? Uh, yes, of course. Yes. Um, the, with the beauty of architecture in France, you, we are surrounded always. And uh, churches and, and, and cathedrals were always my interest. So, you know, being in our deco district and meeting people working in historic preservation in the, uh, on South Beach was really, really interesting. And I work with great architects such as Maurice Lapidus that I work with. He was in 97 when he passed away, and I was working with him for him last year with um, Deborah Desilitz, who was working for him and with him. So we did great things with, um, with that architect. So there was historic preservation? No, he did. Um, actually, he did the Fontainebleau Hilt, uh, Hilton on South Beach, which is well known by the, that architect. So I had a chance to do other restaurants and doing, uh, no, I wasn't doing historic preservation with him, but with other architects. I see. Well, I, th I find that interesting because here in this town, Gavarni, and in the, the villages nearby, Luz, where the radio station is, Fréquence Luz, and a couple of the other villages, there are strict architectural requirements, right, for new buildings so that they meet this style Right? That's correct. Yeah, we have districts that, um, well, actually, no, we do not have districts. The whole village or the whole city will be district. We have architects, national architects, French national architects well, that oversee the project and will give you the green light to go ahead and do your project or not. So 
We don't have a um, history preservation committee that looking at your project, but we have that one person that is referred to the French national architect that look into your project before giving you the green light. So do you think your time in the United States, I mean, Florida, Florida is a, a beautiful state, doesn't have that much physical history. Here, I mean, there's 200 years of history maybe just in this one building. Did that kind of give you a different perspective, being in Florida and coming back here, or did that affect your view of buildings in any way? I learned several things, but definitely learning architecture in the United States about Europe was really interesting because the perspective was from American professors, architect professors, telling me about Europe and France. So that was interesting. Did it give me a, a different perspective? I don't know. I was younger, and I, I wouldn't be able to tell, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no problem. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back on Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. You're listening to Hello, Sonoma. We're right in the middle of an interview with Lydia, the owner of the Hotel Vignemal in the village of Gavarnie, France. Let's jump back into it. But so then after that, I'm sure I'm jumping a few steps here, but after that, you became a facilities manager for all of Western Europe for a company called NetApp, which is a cloud computing company. It has like 12,000 employees around the world. So this is like a big, this is a big job. Yeah, actually, it was random job because I ended up being in Paris doing like some uh, receptionist job. And, and one of the architects at that location asked me to find information about wood. And I just find information. He said, who are you to find so fast information about wood and architecture and all that? And I said, well, I gave them my uh, resume. And they had a position, they had an office manager position to fill because they were about to move and to do a facility, a new facilities, and they had no office manager for that. So they offered the job, and at the time I say, why not? <laughs> so I just, I, I jumped onto that opportunity, and I just started for a few months, and then they gave me a bigger opportunity for three of the countries. So that was France, Italy, and Spain, and then there was France, Italy, Spain, Israel, South Africa and Turkey that I was in charge of. I mean, that sounds like a huge job. That was great. <laughs> that was a huge job. We did renovation in Madrid. We closed up a, um, an office in South Africa and we, we did other things, but that was great. I was younger and that was great. Yeah, I can imagine. So here you are working at this gigantic company that does, that's kind of like, you know, it's like the, the first tier tech companies are the ones that everyone knows the names of. And then the second tier are the companies that like everyone doesn't know the names of, but make the first tier possible, which I think NetApp is one of those. It's like, kind of like Amazon Web Services. Most people don't know that. But without it, the Internet is impossible, like anything. So you're working at this huge company that does all this incredible stuff. And then you decide you're going to come back to Gavarni, population 80. <laughs> what was that thought process like? Uh, the process was waking up one day in the hotel in Milan and not knowing what language to speak or where I was. That was one first thing. And the second was I passed out at the airport, Charles de Gaulle Airport, on my way to Milan for a um, huge business meeting. And I was just going to have a coffee. I just poof, was down on the ground and the firefighters said, you're not traveling today. I was like, oh, that's something telling me something. So there was different things like this, at least those two ones. I had the possibility at that time to go back to the States in Boston 
to do two projects in Waltham for the same company. And that, you know, I just decided not to. I wanted to go back to the rural area, mountain scene, and I was traveling too much. And it was the time for me to, so to speak, to retire, to retire with this type of environment for sure. And so what was it like coming back here? What was um, what was like to go to come back to France first? Sure. Before anything, I think the hardest thing was to come back for, to France after the states, because the coming back from Paris to my own village—it was my own village. I, I lived here for twenty years, so it was easy, almost easy to come back. Hardest was to come back to France. The difference between the United States working in the United States and working in France is a big difference. But coming back home was home, so that was fine. Did you find that people didn't really understand your experiences? or I don't talk about it most of the time because people are not asking or they're not curious about it. And yeah, most of the time people don't, don't really know. They know that I was there they don't, and they don't really understand because... Coming to a small town like this and having being exposed to an ex international business is difficult to explain and to um, to have people that can uh, have the same experience to understand, have the same conversation. So uh, no, I don't. I don't tell. Yeah, and I'm sure the opposite is true when you were on your trips in Milan and South Africa and Israel to say that you know you come from this little town. They probably were like, "What? How is that even possible?" So is there something that you wish? that people knew about this place or this kind of place that they might not quite understand, if that makes sense. I mean, wh when we hear about, you know, a village of 80 people in this tiny little valley. Um, the, um, the, um, the issue of being in places like touristic places, like you have different way of um, embracing the place. As a tourist, you can come here like everybody else to see the Eiffel Tower. But understanding the, how, when it was built, how it was built, how many people were they built the Eiffel Tower, how many times they paint the Eiffel Tower, how often they paint the Eiffel Tower. This is going deeper into the site and into what you visit. So I wish that people could understand more about our village and the site. But guess what? It's not very explained well enough within the town itself. So if you're very curious, you can look for it. You can get information. And but sometimes the visit is too short for people to go that deep. So, so this is the only thing. The, the historic part of it, and the yeah, the historic part of it is maybe what is missing. But any flash visit will always do that. So. Yeah, you're right. I mean, even looking at these black and white photos that are everywhere, that's intriguing. It like builds curiosity about what what's been here, and it's actually something I was curious about, which is this exact. Hotel is this part? Was this part of your family? Is that how you got involved here? Well, actually, not. This hotel was closed for fifty years after the Second World War, so it was um, bought and renovated for three years. But only half of the building was renovated. So yes, it's part of my my family since that renovation. But before it was not, and and that one more time, that's something that this hotel was part of the whole history of this town and. Uh, part of a family that doesn't have two of the hotels anymore. So this one and another one. And the third one is just become a hot another hotel again. So that's great. But the history of this hotel was lost in the archive that burned down with the second hotel that I just talked about. 
so we don't know much about the archive of this uh, of this hotel. It's a mystery forever. So in terms of historical significance of the town, is there anything you wish that the tourists who came here knew? Well, there's just a history, really. It's just that uh, what I miss is there's a place in town that could tell. Yeah, that the, you wish that there were a place that could be like a museum or something that would tell the history of the... Like videos and, and, yeah, historical videos and even like places where you see um, those 3D models uh, done, something like in from the old days, because right here we have a, a um, picture from 1903 like we're looking at right now. And just looking how it was, it was like two, three buildings. Now they may be like 15, which is not much, but how do we came from three buildings to like 15 buildings that nobody knows. Anything. Yeah, it's the importance of keeping those stories going and, and telling them. Well, I'm so grateful that you've been sitting here chatting with me, um, Lydia, because I, you, you have this whole place to run. Um, and the idea of this show is exactly kind of that, to kind of hear people's stories in the place that you are and to kind of memorialize them and keep them going and, and to build curiosity for people for the places that they come from. And the idea is that everyone has a story and that every story is interesting if you ask the right questions. So I'm always trying to develop my questions. And I have two questions here that come from a, a company called Seek Discomfort. Um, do you mind if I ask them to you? No, of course not. So the first question is, uh, can you recall a small decision that ended up changing the course of your life? Uh, yeah, sure. Going to the States <laughs> or coming back from the States. Well, coming back from the States, that's not true. I had a bad um, accident, so I had, I had to come back. So the decision was forced to me. But uh, yeah, maybe the decision to go to the States was to come back to my hometown. Yeah, you had no idea what was going to happen on the other side of that decision, right? Mm, yes, because I could not force in... Uh, no, I could not force in. Even though I was happy to come back home, I didn't know how the, the come up. Uh, no, I didn't see it. No, no way. <laughs> so a kind of a follow-up on that. I think on life, we're lucky if we have kind of guides who have already been through it, you know, can give us advice. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Wow. Um... I get, I guess, plan and anticipate rather than, um, yeah, well, plan and anticipate and, and uh, being aware of the opportunities around you. Mm -hmm. Because I, I guess when I gave my, C, my resume to the person asking me about wood, I think I just knew, how, I just jumped into that opportunity without thinking twice. And nobody told me anything about it. It was not a second thought or anything. I just did. So I guess you have always to be aware of what's going on around you and be able to see the opportunities, I guess, and um, being curious. I think that's very important, especially in work, for work. Yeah, totally. Curiosity is very important. And it's funny you mentioned anticipation. That's one of my few memories of my grandfather's that he said to me when I was little. I was like five playing chess with him and he would destroy me <laughs> and he would always just look at me after he won and say anticipate yeah. he was right right and yeah of course definitely you just need to just yeah very ob observant to, to look around and listen and pay attention and look into details I think something that 
always being very, very, um, I was always very keen on looking into details, always. And details can be a conversation, details into a conversation, details into what you're seeing, picking up on things and use them for the best. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I could sit here and talk to you all night, but I know we have to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> but is there anything else you want to say that uh, you've been thinking about, any details that you think we've left out? Um, no, the, already saying thank you for that opportunity because that's great. And second, and one thing is nice to talk about it because one thing that I really, really, really miss being here for a long time now is that nothing has been said about this place and not enough said. And, and um, yeah, as for the past 10, 15 years, I think things have not changed. So it's a great, great opportunity for me to talk about it. I hope you understood my bad accent. <laughs> you have a fantastic English. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but uh, um, beside that, um, no, I just uh, that opportunity, that's just great. And yeah. Yeah, excellent. Well, I hope that our listeners can learn a little bit about this small town in, uh, in the Pyrenees. And uh, we've learned so much from you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much to Lydia for sitting down and chatting with me at the hotel after a busy day's work. It's just her and a couple of other family members who help run this big hotel that's been around since 1903, so I really appreciate her taking the time to share that story with me. The final step of this chapter was a total coincidence. I had mentioned to someone that I was doing radio, and they told me there was a local radio station in another village just down the road called Luz. I didn't think much of it, but then thanks to a friend, Celine, I was able to go visit. I had no idea what to expect when I walked into the studio. Arnaud, one of the station's hosts, producers, reporters, and playlist creators, welcomed me and showed me around. They had a single professional studio and an office in which there were three other computer stations. Emma, their intern, sat at one computer, and Sandrine, who is a journalist in her own right, but as she says, does a little bit of everything, was sitting at the other. She's from Canada, which means it was a perfect opportunity for an English-language interview. And, thanks to Arnaud, we sat in the studio and spoke with her. Hello, Sonoma. <laughs> or should I say bonjour, Sonoma. I'm talking to you from a little village called Luz, here in France, in the south That's of France, right. in the Pyrenees. I'm here joined by Sandrine. Sandrine, how are you today? Hi, guys. <laughs> this is so exciting. We're in a real studio, real radio studio. Tell us about where we are. So uh, we are in the French Pyrenees, so on the north side of the, the mountain chain. Sorry for my English. I haven't been practicing in quite a while now. You sound um, great. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, and uh, this is an, uh, um, a communitary communitary radio, mm-hmm. I think we could say, because... Um, well, it's not a commercial radio here, um, and we cover, well, mostly uh, local news, but also um, a little bit of, uh, you know, everything that, that's happening, um, uh, music festivals, we have a lot of them uh, in the summertime around here, and also um, uh, we like to cover a bit what's uh, more on the social and environmental uh, side of the of the news so that's a bit of what we do and also we um, well we like to think that we put uh, <laughs> we put on a, um, quite a, a lot of uh, good music yeah. um, on air so uh, we try to at least so uh, yes a little bit of 
everything, um, mostly more independent music or um, emerging. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, uh, if yeah, uh, that's that. it's possible Up to and say coming. that. Yeah, right. for sure. So that's a bit about uh, what we do here. And the station is called Fréquence Luz, which yes. means light frequency. Uh, Frequency uh, of light. Luz uh, means uh, in it's in Spanish, mm -hmm. um, so uh, light. So it's also the name of the village. Um, we don't know exactly where it, it's coming from, but we can think that it's um, people from the mountain um, because we're really close to the Spanish border here. So um, probably people living in the mountain, they would see the village from... Uh, up there and they would say oh you know that that's the light it was like yeah. a, a quite big village maybe for the time <laughs> so that's a, th that would be where the name is from and um, and the local language here that we call patois um, now they regroup a little bit all the patois and it's uh, occitan and uh, the the that's why the that word luz was also used because we have a lot of spanish word mm -hmm. um in uh, in occitan <laughs> well as you mentioned this is a really special place just this studio mm -hmm. is special you have posters from the years and years of the jazz i lose the mm -hmm. jazz festival here in luz yeah. behind us where there are tons of colorful records in front of us <laughs> there's like a yeah church castle. Nice <laughs> there's windows it's amazing we're gonna have to take another quick break but we'll be right back on hello sonoma Hello Sonoma, welcome back. We are still talking to Sandrine from Fréquence Luz, a local radio station from the village of Luz in the French Pyrenees. Let's dive right back in. Someone mentioned that you're from Canada, so I'm curious, I am, yes. how did you end up in this little village here in Well, France? love, what else? <laughs> because my... <laughs> yes! <laughs> um, love for the, love from, for the mountains, of course, but um, also of uh, my uh, long-time uh, uh, companion, who's uh, from, uh, from here, the French Pyrenees. So um, I met him in Canada, and uh, I came a few times to visit, and uh, then last year we moved here and uh, well i got this job um, at fréquence luz so i'm pretty pretty happy about it and i'm here since uh, december now so a few months there are some french stereotypes that i just love <laughs> everything's motivated by love so uh about tell us a little about about your role here on the on the radio station what do you do exactly well it's good to know that we're a small team, so we're like four or five uh, people working full-time. Uh, so that means we do a bit of everything, but um, I studied journalism, so I'm, I do mostly that. So um, going uh, on uh, reports and uh, on the field, we could say. Um, but we also do sometimes uh, interviews uh, on the phone in here in the studio. Um, and also uh, we have some of the uh, hours that, you know, we are um, on, uh, on air, yeah. in, on direct. So um, in those times, well, uh, we, we uh, anime. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot the word. I don't know how to say that. <laughs> um, we host. Yes. We, we host. Uh, so I host um, a little bit the uh, um, lunch show 
at uh, at 12. So that's a bit of what I do. And uh, well, there's a lot of things a bit behind, you know, uh, uh, deciding what to cover and mm-hmm. responding to people, visitors. So yeah, a bit of everything. One of the things I find so magical about radio is that you can really connect with people you might not otherwise connect with. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you were doing interviews all over town and all over the place with interesting people. What has this practice of radio kind of taught you about the area and about your experience in journalism? Well, it's such a great way to arrive in a place because you're really quickly um, put to meet a lot of people you wouldn't have met otherwise. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to, <laughs> to start in a place and meet, uh, meet people, but also understand a bit, you know, how they live and how it works and um, a bit of politics as well. So, uh, yeah, and uh, it's, it was pretty interesting also because I work in, in radio previously in Canada. And um, yeah, it's interesting to see um, different philosophy on, you know, the, the medias and how to, to do this job and how we can have uh, an impact on, on the territory we are on. Yeah. Absolutely. So you and I are also young people in a, in a really old medium. You know, radio has been around <laughs> for a long time. True. Do you have any thoughts about uh, how, where radio is going or what, radio, what role radio can play in the in the role of journalism at the moment? I think it's it's pretty important, yeah. Um, you mentioned that it's a, um, a, a particular bit type of media because it's, I don't know, it's a bit more authentic, maybe closer to people. Um, a lot of people are a bit intimidated by a camera, for example. Mm-hmm. But with radio, it's a bit simpler. And it's also the kind of you know information you will get um, in case of emergency, totally. like for example, here I wasn't there at the time, but um, in 2013 uh, there was um, uh, inundations. Yeah, floods. <laughs> floods. Thank you. There was uh, there were floods. Yeah, the river um, uh, flooded a bit the area, and the, the road was cut. So you know that's when you see that radio is still really Huge. important and useful for the people. But even when it's not emergency cases, I think that uh, it's still pretty listened to when people are driving and uh, a bit every day too. So that's why we try to, you know, to have a, a great musical also programming so that it's, you know, it's agreeable to listen to. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, so <laughs> as I mentioned, my show is called Hello Sonoma. Okay. It's from a small town in Sonoma. We had the same thing. Where, where is it? It's just to the north of San Francisco in California. Okay, California. And cool. we had something similar there were fires there we had the opposite problem <laughs> and the radio was the only thing but you know we both come from or now we're living in small towns what's one thing you wish that people of Sonoma knew about Luz if you could describe it oh huh there's so much to say well um one th- only one thing mm, that's hard you can to say <laughs> you can say your top three if you want okay my top three well um well, one thing about about here is that for many years, like I said, there's like one road that, you know, can be, well, two, because now there's a road by the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't always, well, it's not the easy way. And in wintertime, it's complicated as well. So for a long time, this was um, 
pretty uh, small and uh, remote place to get to. So they develop um, a culture, I would say, a little bit. So he people um, here, we call this territory Pitoy, be, apparently because people were smaller. So there was English people yeah, and, and that's country. one theory. Yeah, mm -hmm. toy country. So that's one theory about why it's called like this, but we don't know exactly. So yeah, I think that's... Um, pretty representative of, of, you know, here, because it, it reminds a bit, you know, that heritage of being a really remote and mm. inaccessible place. And then the road came and tourism came. So there was um, uh, hot, um, hot water mm -hmm. coming from hot source, mm -hmm. coming from the mountain. Um, well, not necessarily hot, but mineral water sure. coming from the mountains. So that brought uh, a first wave of tourism, and it changed a bit, you know, people here who was used to be a little bit uh, on their own. And then um, ski was developed a lot, and now it's a big, big spot for ski. So yeah, I think I <laughs> I've covered pretty much a history. Um, um, hot, yeah, I don't know how to say this. Um, but those those thermal waters yeah. and ski. I Hot think that's springs. the... Yeah, yeah and ski. Yeah. That's Hot awesome. Springs. Wow, well, I feel so honored <laughs> to be here uh, with you on Fréquence Luz and on Hello Sonoma and uh, to see what's going on. I think, like you mentioned, radio is such a powerful tool for connecting people because you're so close. You're in their ears, just like everyone listening now. Connecting you in California. Exactly, you <laughs> would have thought it. In so, a small village. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Sandrine. It's been a pleasure. Enchanté. <laughs> Plaisir partagé. Thank you. Thanks again so much to Sandrine, Arnaud, Emma, and everyone else at Fréquence Luz for allowing me to sit with them and use their studio for this awesome interview. I love that this is how we ended this episode, with a reminder of the importance of local radio, just like KSVY. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to this ongoing experiment. If you'd like to hear the full French interviews, go to hellosonoma.org, and I'll be putting them at the end of this episode. At the end of our radio interview with Fréquence Luz, they actually turned the table on me and sat me down for an interview. So you can hear that conversation in French as well on hellosonoma.org. For now, that's the end of this dispatch. Make sure to tune in next week. Thank you for listening. And though we've reached the end of this episode, remember, it's not goodbye. It's Hello Sonoma. <laughs>